When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the everything you ever wanted to know about Taylor Swift edition of Slate Money with our resident Taylor Swift expert, Mr. Jacob Weisberg. This is going to be amazingly fun, not only because we have Jacob Weisberg here, who knows more about Taylor Swift than anyone else I know. I think fuck all is the the technical term. Taylor, you you have two teenagers. I mean, Jacob, you have two teenagers. Neither of whom is called Taylor. (laughs) Yeah, no, we didn't name either of them after Taylor, although even that does work for either gender. Uh, My teenagers have had no interest in Taylor Swift. My my 18-year-old daughter has not been interested in Taylor Swift. What can I say? I've been listening to Look What You'd Made Me Do on, like, repeat for the past two weeks. Who do you have a feud with that you're, like, (laughs) imagining? Like, who is your – who are you putting in place place of Kanye? I'm I'm a – I'm a fan, I can say. Soon um, to be a super fan? <laughs> we, no, we are actually going to be talking about Taylor Swift. Her mechanism for trying to circumvent the scalpers. This is a issue which has been around for a long time. She has a bright idea. We'll talk about that. We're going to talk about 8 million square feet of new Amazon headquarters and where they might go. Yeah. Um, and because Jacob Weisberg is, oh, Jacob, well, you should probably introduce yourself. You're like our boss, but. Not really. <laughs> <laughs> but not really. Um, I run the, I'm chairman of the Slate Group, which includes Slate and Panoply. And uh, as part of that, a big part of my job has been developing all of the podcasting we're doing. Uh, but I'm mainly just a listener of yours, Felix. I would never, I would never <laughs> call myself your boss in any I feel, way. I feel like if there's a panoply show with Slate in the title, then you're like doubly involved. Yeah, we don't necessarily need to sort all that out right now. <laughs> it doesn't really matter to listeners what what the marquee is, right? So okay, so we are. So I am Felix Salmon of Fusion. Anna Shemansky is here. Hello. Jordan Weissman of Slate is here. Hey, everyone. And we are going to be talking about media because Jacob has been a media executive for some time, knows his way around that world even better than he knows his way around the world of Taylor Swift. <laughs> and and there are some big old legacy media brands which have been sold of late. And um, we'll see what's happening with those. We might even get a plug-in for slate plus this is how we managed to get jacob yes. into the into the show is by promising him that we would plug slate plus we're going to talk about media models sponsorship models revenue diversification all of that kind of thing but really i want to talk about taylor swift as okay. well you should let's get going so Let's jordan what 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 has she gone done now <sighs> look what the scalpers made her do <laughs> um so yeah taylor swift is coming out with a new album for better or worse um reputation yes reputation uh her just the cry of her resentful id towards um but anyway so of course she's also going on a tour soon to back that album and anytime an artist like taylor swift go well there's no one quite like taylor swift she's unique she's unique there's no one like her in the world but of her of her star power goes on tour uh scalping becomes a huge huge issue people want to buy up as many tickets as they can using bots and whatnot and sell them on the secondary market making it impossible for normal fans to get into these shows for a reasonable price and it- this is this is such a thing so there is a weird sort of 
tabloid news hook here, which is the sports radio guy. What was his name? Oh, I forget. Is it uh, Car- his last name's Carton? Carton. He has this sports radio show called Carton and Isaiason, something like that. <laughs> Boomer Isaiason. Boomer Isaiason is in the former quarterback, but you don't know sports ball. But okay, anyway, <laughs> continue. And 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 anyway, half of this um, twosome was arrested by the SEC for basically creating a Ponzi scheme. Um, but at the heart of a Ponzi scheme was a seemingly legitimate plan that he had to buy up a bunch of Taylor Swift tickets and Katy Perry tickets and various other sort of high-profile concert tickets at face value from concert promoters and then turn around well, and sell them at a profit. My my impression was actually it was he was it was a little less legit than that. Oh, it was that, totally not legit. No, no, it was no, seemingly but it was legit. Even less. So, he that would have actually made sense as a plan because he was if you had said I was going to buy them at face value, it's like, well, yeah, you can buy tickets at face value, but apparently what he was telling his would-be investors was that he had inside connections in the industry that he could get them at a discount and then have some sort of discount ticket service. So But but he but in any case it was this scalping. Was yeah. he wanted to create a kind of legal scalping thing. And he managed to f- get like genuine legitimate hedge funds to give him $10 million because <laughs> there is so much money in scalping. legit scalping. Yeah, it's enormous. And so Ticketmaster. Wh- um, which hedge fund strategy is that? I want to know. <laughs> of course, like the, this didn't work mainly because he never actually bought any tickets, mainly because he didn't actually have any contacts in the music industry. Yeah, he but he had a lot of gambling debts. <laughs> <laughs> Hedge fund people presumably understand that scalping is a bad name for something called arbitrage, which is one of the ways they often make money. Or, 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 or what's also known as price discovery. Yes. <laughs> um, yeah, that's how you, you find who really values the resources, price gouging. Also, we can, so anyway. Um, so so Ticketmaster, you're right about Ticketmaster. Ticketmaster is one of the most conflicted actors in this whole sordid story because yeah. – on the one hand, they don't want to be completely evil. But on the other hand, they're completely evil. And they increasingly, and I remember going doing a bit of a deep dive into this during like one of the LCD sound system farewell tours, um, that what they do when they sell tickets to a show is they actually sell a tiny, tiny percentage of tickets to the show. And when people say the show sold out in five minutes or whatever it is, that's because they only sold seven tickets. And then the rest of the tickets get quietly transferred over to Ticketmaster's sister site, StubHub, and sold at well, more or less market rate. So it isn't StubHub owned by eBay, though? I think it's. Are they actually related in any way? Quite? Aren't they related? I don't I think they. they I don't think they are. I think their own. I think that's. A, well, Ticketmaster has, has its own has secondary site. Yeah, they, have, they have their own secondary. They have their yeah. own secondary site. Yeah, that's. I think that that sounds right. But, but in any case, the promoter who ultimately yeah. controls the tickets winds up selling mo- more tickets on places like Ticketmaster's yeah. secondary site right. and on StubHub than they do actually but, through the box. Again, office. because ultimately the problem that we always have with this type of market is that you have a product that is not being priced at the market rate. It is being kept artificially low because no artist wants to actually charge what it would cost. But then the problem is that anytime you do that, you create either a black market or because, a secondary because market. Because you can't amp up supply infinitely. Exactly. There's no way. You can't so, just increase. increase so Taylor itself. Swift has what I think is one of the more interesting mm-hmm. solutions well, to this Well, this, t- this is Ticketmaster's solution that Taylor Swift then customized. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, go on. Yeah. It's, um, so the way that this that, that people like Nike have tried to get around this problem when they're selling limited edition sneakers is not to, you know, do the obvious thing, which is to not make the sneakers limited edition and just sell as many as people want. But rather, it's to create a whole bunch of hoops that people have to jump through in order to be able to be eligible to buy the sneakers, you know, and you start with simple captures and things which try and kill the bots. But whenever you whatever you do, the scalpers and the bots find a way around it um so what the new idea is is that you actually really genuinely make people prove that they're human fans not by trying to fill out forms or standing in line or whatever because all of that gets gamed but rather just by being fans and by posting about your fandom on 
in, on social media and by buying T-shirts and albums and being like a super fan. And the more of that you do, the more points you get. And the more points you get, the more likely you are to be able to buy tickets. And the people who jump through those hoops and end up buying a ticket at the end of the day turn out not to flip their tickets to StubHub that often. Yeah, it's like, yeah. It's like Bitcoin mining. It is. it is. You put all of the effort right. into doing it, and then you're like, oh, now now, I've, now I have this like endowment effect, and I'm not going to sell my ticket even though I could. And even just the verified fan program, even before Taylor Swift kind of added her additional color to it, it was, it was going from about you know, 50% or more tickets showing up in the secondary market to something like 5% yeah. showing up. It was, so it's significant. It, it, it was pretty successful. And so... Here's the thing. So Ticketmaster has this verified fan program. It's created. And, and they've done it with a few artists. Bruce Springsteen tried it out. Uh, Hamilton, I believe, did it. Um, and there weren't a lot of complaints uh, because, you know, the fan verification process actually didn't involve that many hoops. It was relatively smooth. You didn't have to buy too much merch or anything like that. Um, Taylor Swift, on the other hand, decided to incorporate it into her kind of PR machine for the release of this album. So you got more points for doing things like taking a picture of the branded uh, reputation, the reputation branded UPS trucks that were driving around cities and posting on social media. Um, if you listen to her like video five times a day on YouTube, driving up, uh, you know, driving up its view count and getting her up the billboard charts. How, uh, Fel- how Felix got his ticket. Yeah, yeah, exactly. This yeah. was just, you put it on repeat. You know, you got, you, you got more points that way. If you bought her album, you got more points that way. And, 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 and to be, you know, and the criticism was that it's not just about throwing up hashtags on social media the way you really get the points is by spending money but i don't see what's wrong with that because ultimately we have a market here where we had a lot of money that was not going to the artists was not going to the record company was not going to any body that was actually creating content or value it was Uh, simply going to middlemen i feel like the record company and the concert promoters like to pretend that that money doesn't go to them. But as I say, I feel that behind the scenes, in fact, a lot of the money used to actually wind up going to them. That's and, fair enough. But yeah. here again, I would rather have this money going to Taylor Swift than going to some guy in New Jersey who's reselling tickets. Well, so I think, again, you kind of have to contrast it with the other um, you know, dry runs they've done of this, this verified fan system, where, again, they weren't quite as... Um, geared towards getting you to buy merch and they seem to succeed right you, you said like other versions before taylor swift had you know knocked down the number mm-hmm. of tickets on the secondary market to like five percent or something at least the ones that were sold through this program so it's possible to do this without saying you have to buy my t-shirt and my album and you know well, do the pre-sale and yada 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 so i think that's that that's where some of the frustration comes but the my you know is it wrong i don't think it's wrong it's just if you're a pop star, image is everything. And right now, Taylor Swift is more and more making herself look like part of, you know, making herself look like just sort of this, you know, uber capitalist, I guess. Unlike like, all those other artists who are all just socialists. No, but that's the, that's the whole, I mean, Taylor Swift is fine being a capitalist, yeah. right? She owns her own record label. This is all part of her thing. And she's never been shy about, I'm a very successful recording artist. You move over to someone like Bruce Springsteen, who's all like man of the working people, and then it becomes much more, you know, I am already very rich and I don't actually want to extract maximum dollars from my fans when I go out on tour. I want to play for my biggest fans, whether they are rich or not. And it becomes harder for him. But he sort of managed to do that, right? I mean, the tickets were still pretty expensive, but... I gathered. I missed the lottery. I would have. I would have entered it. <laughs> but I gathered that p- people felt like they had a sh- fair shake. I mean, part of the problem is that you know when you buy tickets from Ticketmaster or, or one of these distributors, you feel like you've been mugged. I mean, you feel like you've been mugged if you buy chamber music tickets from them. <laughs> you know, it's not just as if the whole system is about the fees are really mm-hmm. high, and there's just this kind of shakedown to it. And if you can ever buy directly feel like you're buying more directly from the artist or from the theater or whatever, you have a much different feeling, even if you end up paying the same price. That's certainly true. And I don't think, I think, I feel like there's this deep disconnect between sellers and buyers when it comes to stupid compulsory fees. Yeah. And so whenever you buy a ticket and suddenly there's a 695 handling fee and a 795 shipping fee and another like convenience fee or whatever and 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 the steam is coming out of your ears whenever you see these fees 
much the same way as it comes out of your ears when you get charged for checking a bag on the airlines or when you go to a hotel and there's a resort fee and you're like what, what is a resort fee you know? <laughs> and and normal human beings just want to be told what the price is and pay it and someone somehow somewhere along the line decided that no the best thing to do is to quote an artificially low face value and then add a bunch of fees on top why does that make sense because I think ultimately people will buy based on the face value price. When they're looking to buy, they don't think of all those extra things. And once they're at the point where they're actually being charged all those extra things, they're just going to continue with the purchase. So it makes total sense from a business perspective. You're going to bring them in with that artificially low price and they'll except, ultimately also, play except a price. This is a repeat game. Also, if, right. you're, if you're an artist, right, or you're a venue, you don't want to be blamed for the extra cost associated with those fees. So... You know, you're sort of you're throwing that rage all onto Ticketmaster. You're making sure that you're the person coming to see that Bruce Springsteen concert is hyper aware that Madison Square Garden did not charge you that extra fourteen twenty dollars. That Ticketmaster charged you that extra twenty dollars. Whether or not that actually works, I don't know. But I feel like that's probably part of the deal, or at least was back in the day, that they didn't have to uh, wrap all those extra fees into the the face value of their tickets. The right. um. I really like the membership model. I don't know if this works for Taylor. <laughs> can, can we have a yeah. Slate Plus plug here? Well, you know, but it's funny. A place that does that is the Public Theater. I'm a member of the Public Theater. They did Hamilton. They do lots of great, go to lots of their plays. And you pay a fee to be a member. Yeah. And it's a reasonable fee. I mean, I think it's gone up to maybe $100 now. You get first crack at all the tickets. And they have a couple-day window and they have a play that's definitely going to sell out. They send you an email saying, you, members, if you want tickets to Hamilton or whatever it is, get them now. Because in two days, you're going to be competing with everybody else and their price is going to go up and they're going to be sold out. And so, first of all, they create this group of their most loyal supporters, people who probably make contributions in excess of the membership, but people who are really interested in what they do, they prioritize their most loyal friends and fans in a way that doesn't cost them that much revenue, but kind of prioritizes people the way Taylor Swift wants to. This is what in my youth used to be called a fan club. I mean, indie bands do that too. You see that versions of that with, you know, uh, acts that can sell out a large club, but not a stadium. The problem is I imagine scalpers would kind of price in the, the ma- well, actually, could a scalper price in the cost of a you know fan club membership into their business? No, model? I feel like they, they, yeah, they, they circumvent the fan yeah. clubs, but I can, I can attest from trying to deal with the public theater box office that the experience of buying tickets from the public theater if you're not a member is so unbelievably painful that I am going to become a member just to get just oh, really? to avoid it. I, it's funny. There's a member. I always have such a good experience. Someone answers the phone. There are no wait times. Like they, they tell you. Exactly. It's, it's a really, it works really well. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. So let's take that and talk about media models because I feel that's the perfect segue. (laughs) (laughs) Totally fortuitous. Totally fortuitous. (laughs) Tell me me about um, the importance of having a nice, predictable revenue stream from fans and members which isn't contingent on the whims of whether or not you have a hit show or can sell a big ad deal to IBM. Feels that the strength of of uh, publishing businesses that were healthy traditionally was getting money from advertising and money from readers or from from audience. And over time, a lot of these businesses, magazines in particular, came to depend almost exclusively on the advertising revenue because in the 80s, and even newspapers, you found that the subscription cost was invariably lower than the cost of printing and distributing. It wasn't that. They got, like, profits from that. Selling newspapers for 25 cents, right. They were they were boosting their circulation and so they could charge more for the advertising. The, the readership was, in a way, a loss leader. And it was even more true at magazines than newspapers, but as you say, true at both. 
And but after they got so dependent on advertising, subsidizing their readership, advertising went into decline. And as those numbers started to go down, uh, lots of publishers said, "Wait a minute! Wouldn't it be nice if we could be getting real money from our audience again?" But the there were some problems with that. One was that they had really in the digital age really trained their audiences not to expect to have to pay for content. Um, another was that the people were just had just fallen out of out of the habit of doing them. I mean, There's so much content for free that was so good. Why should you pay for anything? And even for many years, New York Times, for example, thought it was better off essentially not charging online, even though it's still charged. In so we've had. Th- I, I'm going to bring up three um, big sort of legacy print franchises which got sold of late. Um, the ones which spring to mind anyway. First of all, there was the Washington Post, which used to be owned by us here at Graham Holdings and is now owned by Jeff Bezos. That sold for $250 million, which to a first approximation is, you know, maybe a little bit more than the value of the money in the pension fund that he got as part of the deal. Um, then more recently, David Bradley, who sunk... I don't know what fifty million dollars over the years, maybe more into the Atlantic Monthly over the years. Um, sold that to Laureen Powell Jobs for an undisclosed sum, but I doubt it was enormous. And then, very recently, we got the news that Mark, uh, Mark Zuckerberg, <laughs> <laughs> not Mark different Zuckerberg, news. <laughs> different Zuck, <laughs> the different Zuck mm. sold the. Um, Mort Zuckerman. Mort Zuckerman sold the New York Daily News to. The gloriously named Tronk. <laughs> what were they thinking? <laughs> for um, for basically like zero, but one dollar. Th- there was well, a there was a thirty million dollar yeah. pension fund liability in there as well. So or, none of the. So what do you make of those sales, and what does it say about legacy print brands? Well, each of those is its own story, and that precedent, you know, Newsweek sold for a dollar. I mean, you know, the, the the value attached to what were once great publishing businesses is radically reduced. And as, as you say, in many cases, the price of these is effectively zero or some nominal amount of money. Now, I think the Daily News is sold in part because Mort Zuckerman is getting older and is ailing and is, you know, he can't really run it, can't really run it anymore. With David Bradley, it's a different story. Uh, he, you know, he's concerned about the legacy of this, uh, magazine. He's essentially turning it into a nonprofit by selling it to Emerson Collective, which is Loreen. Paul Jobs's philanthropy, um, and I think the Washington Post was yet another story. I think Bezos was uh, seen by the Graham family as someone with very deep pockets who could support the paper, but also really invest the paper, which he's done, and it's created a kind of renaissance in their journalism, which is you know very happy, not ending to the story, but a very happy new chapter for people working at the Washington Post. Some of these are are pretty optimistic scenarios, but I think what it points to is the old revenue models, the old ownership models, no longer working. And the p- places that are figuring it out are improvising in different ways. Well, I mean, Tronk is the old ownership model, right? Of like having some big national conglomerate of papers from the Chicago Tribunes or the LA Times to the New York Daily News and somehow trying to get synergies there. Yeah. I mean, that seems the least Trunk compelling. Is by far the worst of these three stories. I yeah. Think. I mean, because right now it's, stra- yeah, it's strategy is to create a national newspaper chain and somehow leverage that into better digital advertising rates, which I look at that and I think, what's the difference between that and Gannett, right? Like what is, you know, you the owner of like USA Today and God knows how many Metro papers and it has just been struggling and dying and, and cutting down to the bone. You know, Trunk is partial, you know, and part of the reason it changed its name to Tribune Online Content or whatever was to create this impression it was going to create great like new tech that would somehow harvest money from this fair, tr- this worn and kind of tired business model. Um, so I, I fear for my local tabloid, uh, basically. But I, sort of, I, the other two, I think, are, are happy stories. So, so right, this is the thing. I feel like there's value in these brands, which is not, you know, 
Anna, I'm going to you know, c- c- cover Their your cash ears. generation potential? Yeah. You, know, it, it, you can't find it in a discounted cash flow model. Like, it, there is value here. This is, you know, we knew all of this story when Rupert Murdoch spent $5 billion on buying the Wall Street Journal. He wasn't doing that because of a DCF model, right? And when Laureen Powell Jobs buys the Atlantic, she's not doing it because of a DCF model. And I feel like, I feel like what Jordan is saying in a little bit is... What you want is to find an owner who isn't trying to obsess about cash flow. It's all about the scale of losses. I mean, that describes more Zuckerman, too, both buying the owning the Daily News, which was never a moneymaker, uh, and owning the Atlantic, you know, owning publishing enterprises, both local newspapers and national magazines, has always been an, about a, an element of vanity, political influence. People have, want to own these things for different reasons, but they will very often want to own them even if they have very little hope of ever making money. I think it's all about the scale of the losses. Uh, I think when, say, David Bradley bought the Atlantic, um, the anticipated scale of losses was in the single millions of dollars per year. And of course, he didn't want to lose. He wanted to make a couple of million dollars a year, but he could conceive of l- losing that amount of money for a long period of time and getting by. When you're looking at losing the amounts of money that you can lose, particularly on a, on a printed newspaper, which goes into the tens of millions of dollars a year, you know, the Guardian was said to lose, I think, 40 million pounds last year. These are losses that nobody can sustain on a really ongoing indefinite basis. So I have a question, though, for you, Jacob. And I should preface this by saying I am an Atlantic alum, but it's been long enough that I have no inside knowledge whatsoever of their finances. Uh, they're claiming now that they have they're making about $10 million a year, that they actually say they're profitable. Do you believe that? I mean, I, you know, the story seems, to, at least the story they've projected is that, yeah, between their digital revenue, which they say is about 80, they say digital advertising, about 80% of their revenue, which kind of is mind boggling to me if you're profitable. But then on top of that, they have their events business, which is sort of talking about changing your business model. They've, they've you know, I assume a lot of their profits is coming from essentially running these symposiums in D.C. that people, businesses pay a lot of money to send their their people to. Um, you know, it seems conceivable to me that there actually there are no losses at this point. Do you just kind of doubt that or... Well, particularly when you're private, you have a lot of flexibility yeah. in terms of where you attribute overhead, where you say, mm-hmm. you know, how you, the Atlantic, yes, you could have a very profitable events business and an unprofitable magazine yeah. and say the Atlantic's profitable. I don't know. I think, you know, first of all, the Atlantic's done a commendable job. I mean, I think they're, you know, for a lot of other media companies, they're kind of a model of how to get into some other businesses that help to support yeah. the core the core written content that they're still doing doing very well. But I think... The prospects for that business. I mean, the funny thing about a highbrow magazine like The Atlantic is the prospects haven't been good for decades. Yeah. Right. Um, you know, as opposed to Vanity Fair or, you know, mm-hmm. big consumer magazines, which were really making a lot of money in the 80s and 90s and into the 2000s and now face a future in which there's very little profit that you can see because happening. Because all their best right. ads have gone to Instagram, basically, because that's where fact. Be- well, and because well, the digital ads have gone to Facebook and Google and yeah. because people aren't with a few exceptions people aren't paying for the publication. So whereas it's not coming from revenue, from advertising, it's not coming from readers, where is it coming from? So, so, yeah, so I want to just quickly, because we have you here, and it's a rare and special opportunity to ask, what on earth is this Slate Plus thing that we keep on (laughs) asking people to buy? Um, At one point, Slate attempted a membership paywall model and then dropped it, and this is like Plan B, well, the, the paywall, I should say, was 1997-98. So that was in the uh, early experimental phase of the Internet. We learned a lot doing that. We had we got 20,000 paid subscribers back then, which in retrospect was a big, a big achievement, but not enough to pay the cost of the magazine, and we, we preferred the big audience. And ever since then, we've been biased towards being free because you reach a bigger audience. Slate's writers, like Jordan, want to reach the biggest audience they can reach. They don't want to be behind a paywall like the excellent Financial Times, for which I write sometimes, but which doesn't you know, reach a big audience on the web because it's quite strictly paywalled. So what we tried to do with Slate Plus, which is now three years old uh, and, and going very strong, is to get our most dedicated readers to help support the journalism we do and also to get certain excellent benefits like the ability to listen to this show without ads 
um, which if you listen to a, a lot of podcasts, it ends up saving you considerable time as much as we love our advertisers. And uh, to have that as a, as a kind of offer for the, for the core audience, but still keep the main content free. And that model is starting to look interesting to other publishers as well. The Atlantic has just started a membership model. The Guardian has a membership model. These are places that aren't paywalled, where the content remains free online, uh, but where they want people to still give the money for some extra stuff. The, the newest thing, which is which is just in the past couple of weeks, that The Guardian and The New York Times have both done is they've announced they're setting up nonprofit arms, which are actual like 501c3 registered charities, which people can make tax-deductible donations to to help support their um, journalism. This, like, Slate Plus is not a charitable donation, right? You're actually trying to give people something of value in return for their money. Yeah, it's not it's not tax-deductible, and that's, the, that's what they're trying to solve. I mean, I think that in some ways the Garden's taking the next step and saying, well, all right, if we're asking people essentially to give us contributions to support what we do... In America, as opposed to in the UK, they would like those contributions to be tax deductible. In the UK, they wouldn't be tax but deductible. But do, do you consider Slate Plus revenue to be a kind of quasi-contribution, or is it actually something which you think is like a compelling value proposition on its own? I think it's we're, we're, we have both angles working in our favor. Um, I mean, I think there's an element of conscience, particularly since the election and in the Trump presidency, I think people see independent media as under so much attack and threat that people do want to contribute to support the most those uh, significant places standing up to the administration. That includes the New York Times and the Guardian, Slate and the New Yorker and the Atlantic and and others, others independent voices. But I think we're also have been working very hard to make it a value proposition, you know, and with you. But it's not a single benefit such as a paywall where you must pay to get the benefit of reading the publication. It's more like the ad-free f- podcast, fewer ads on the site, first crack at tickets for our live event, <laughs> discounts on tickets for our live events, chances to interact with Felix Salmon. You know, we do we do the thing, we do the extra segments on the podcast. And I think part of it is, you know, we it's fun doing that stuff. It's fun talking to the little audience of the core readers on the Slate Plus segments. But we're not we we're not we don't want to make a decision between those two things. We want people to support us because it's a virtuous thing to do and because they'll get things that they want to have. With the Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. You know what? I feel like I want to have a tax policy discussion now. Do you? Yes. <laughs> there actually is some tax policy here, a little bit. No, I feel like this is this is the big multi-billion dollar question over what on earth is going on with Amazon and their announcement is they they have basically got I don't know what 6 8 12 US cities all competing with each other to see who can throw more billions of dollars at them and they say well whoever throws the most billions of dollars at us we are going to come into your town build 8 million square feet of Amazon HQ and bring you 50,000 six-figure salary jobs and basically transform your entire economy much as we have already transformed the economy of Seattle. And I would say that if they could do for other cities what they have done for Seattle, that would probably be a good investment (laughs) for most cities. Yeah, I mean, there's so many questions here. I mean... a lot of people have compared this to like Olympic bidding, right? Except for maybe not it's quite the opposite. It, yeah, I mean, like you know, except for like bid to lose money. Yeah, as I say, bidding on the Olympics is just never a good idea. This for some cities, this this could theoretically be wise. It, it's there is something a little bit gross about the fact that they are very evidently asking for tax concessions and things along those lines and, and some subsidies um, 
basically putting out a RFP for you know every major city in America that fancies itself a tech and hub or Canada. wants to be one. Yep. And, ca- and Canada. Mm-hmm. I didn't, yeah. uh, Toronto but, is a real front runner here. Okay, but if if Jeff Bezos does that, he's just going to be amping up his war, handing so much fodder to to Donald Trump in, in his war <laughs> against him in the Washington Post. But um, I don't know. Who knows? Maybe he'd do it anyway. I, I feel I no. I mean, I feel like Toronto could be a smart move. But let's just rewind here yeah. for a minute. Um, Anna, have you ever heard of a company voluntarily winding up with two different headquarters in two different cities? What What is going on here? So I think this is an interesting example because they have very much tied themselves to Seattle in a lot of ways. But I think right now it's probably partly a space issue in terms of how much they they, can... They have literally run out of space in Seattle. Right. They have basically, to a first approximation all of the prime office space in Seattle. They've been building more as fast as they can. They've run out of space and they've said, we need more space. We can't find it in Seattle. We can't even find the um, labor force we need in Seattle because so many of the, you know, we've hired everyone in Seattle who we can hire. And so we're trying to just persuade people to move to Seattle now. Wouldn't it be better to go to somewhere which already has a labor force with, with people that we want to hire? We can they don't need to move to Seattle. It'll be cheaper. And we can also get billions of dollars from local right. government. But the downside of this is two headquarters. The only other company I can think of which has two headquarters is Unilever. And they hate it so much they're getting rid of that system. I mean, Jacob, does it make any sense to you? It does It does seem like a sort of self-inflicted wound to be in different time zones and maybe even different uh, countries with your major headquarters. I mean, the the, the the top corporate staff has to be in one place or another, or they're all going back and forth all the time. And if they're going back and forth all the time, it's sort of miserable. Well, like, yeah, I've worked at a company where yeah. I was not actually at the headquarters. I was in a, a different office. And it is a pain, especially when you're talking about different time zones. Yeah. It really is not ideal. Well, and and I have also worked at a company, Thomson Reuters, which had more headquarters than you could count. There was New York, there was London, there was Toronto, there was two Switzerland, and try and all you wound up with was senior executives spending their entire life on airplanes, jetting between all of these different places. And I don't, and it just doesn't, it's not efficient. It doesn't make sense. Well, for all the reasons you're talking about, I guess I've I've been kind of wondering a a few things about this headquarters. First, whether or not it's really going to be a a headquarters, right? Or is it going to be a thing where they kind of, there's going to be a ton of the sort of mid-level work here. A lot. They're talking, they're talking about spending $5 billion and, yeah, but it's also that's they've a lot said, of money. They've said the average salary is going to be about $100,000, I think. So that suggests to me that there's going to be a lot of mid-level stuff going on. Well, I mean, they're saying they, they're hiring 50,000 people. You can't have 50,000 senior people, Fair, can you? Right. Fair enough. Are, are they just ne- negotiating with Seattle? I mean, they want this, you know, you have, do have this race to the bottom, which you guys were talking about, where these states, you know, bid against each other to see who will give the richest benefits to track the company. And then they get their best offer and they take it back to Seattle and they say, what are you guys going to do? Don't you want more jobs here? And even though, you know, people in Seattle complain about Amazon, they want those jobs. They well, certainly I think it's don't right. want it's to. It's clear that Amazon's not leaving Seattle. Yeah. But at this point, I feel like Seattle wants the marginal extra Amazon job much, much less than almost any other city in the country. Also, F- Felix sent along a great article when when he says that they've actually run out of space in Seattle. He's like, I mean, you're not kidding. Apparently, like, <laughs> Literally. The, the Seattle Times went and, and looked at this and found that I think it was like 16%, almost 20% of Seattle's like class A corporate real estate is taken up already by Amazon, which is more than any company. More than the next well, 40, 40 combined. Yeah, yeah right. like it, no other company in any city in the country takes up that much of a city's uh, prime real estate. So right. it's just... But I mean, if you've been to Seattle, they can build more buildings. They built those buildings for Amazon. They can build, you know, they can build on the other side where Microsoft is. I mean, it's all a question of zoning and, and regulation, whether they're allowed to build, but there's no... That's you know, politically the, There's still place. enough coffee in Seattle for everybody. <laughs> but we right. have to... And yeah. I, I think what's also interesting to think about here is that we're throwing around a lot of numbers, but is Amazon actually going to spend this amount of money? Are they actually going to employ this amount number of people? We do not know. Right now, it is very cheap for Amazon to say this, and they can potentially, you know, garner 
you know, tax breaks from saying this and also good PR in the U.S. right now by saying, look, we're bringing all these jobs. They are partly doing this because it makes Amazon look good. Although it also makes I, don't know, I feel this just horrible skeeviness about this idea that they can. I mean, on the one hand, they can build a new HQ anywhere they like, anytime they like, for any reason they like. Um but when you politicize this and you force a bunch of cities and states to st- come groveling to you and tell you how much they love you, like, is that a great look? No, I mean, it's yeah, it's, it's like a Hunger Games aspect of it. That's, <laughs> that's not ideal or like a King Lear. Um, but again, I think it gives Amazon an excuse to say, we're creating all these jobs. Look at all these jobs we're creating. Yeah, I, I, I think you're both, you know, it's sort of going to be in the eye of the beholder. You can make either argument. I just... I don't know. I I find it. I I just I we don't know what this thing is. I guess that that's that's what it comes down to is we really don't know. Like you said, we, they're throwing numbers. We don't know if the hiring. We don't know what's going to be going down there. So we don't know if it's going to actually act as the, the sort of seed of a potential larger ecosystem like Amazon's actual headquarters has. Because if it is a bunch of more mid level stuff, that's going to be well. Be I think less of one of the reasons we don't know is because even Amazon isn't going to know for a few years after it builds it it's not yeah. something they, they have made it pretty clear that there's going to be a bunch of choice you know senior managers are going to be able to choose do you want to stay in seattle or do you want to move to x and depending on whether x is baltimore or toronto or detroit or austin or boston or you know wherever it is people are really into denver for some reason have you been to um, denver nice but like there are all of these different cities and depending on which city they choose, different people will wind up choosing to move there for different reasons. There's going to be a different local skill set and, you know, it will evolve organically. I think there's a limit to how much Amazon can predict about what it's going the, to do. The, the mayors and governors love this race to the bottom. They shouldn't because it's terrible for them. But it first of all, they get to give speeches about how great their place is. They have in in resource constrained environments. They suddenly have resources to work with because you're paying in tax benefits, so it's not re- not real money. And somebody wins, you know. But they they love kind of bidding for the Olympics, bidding for Amazon. It's a it's a problem of federalism that it's you know every individual is best off making the most ludicrous offer they can pull together, but the end result is a company that doesn't need subsidy ends up getting massive public subsidy. So, so Jacob, what's your, um, which city do you think is in pole position here? Who do you think is going, who's well placed to win this RFP? I mean, Redmond, you know, I mean, if I were, if I were, (laughs) if I were at Amazon, I would say what's the closest possible destination. So actually, you know, Portland or Vancouver, I mean, I wouldn't, you know, if if you're going to split the management, if I were in the management, I'd say, let's make it the shortest possible ride. If it weren't for the fact that Austin's uh, just infrastructure has turned into a total clusterfuck and like the commute there is just deadly and they have a hard time building mass transit. No I, Uber. Yeah. I'm not going to yeah, go somewhere with that. Uber. I, I, they have Uber now. Uh, oh, do they? Yeah. There was, uh, oh, there was they, a they, Texas-wide law which re-implemented Uber in, no. or, across all of Texas. And oh, oh, good. I'm going, for the, uh, about it. I, I'm going for the Texas Tribune Festival, so I'll be able uh, to get around. But yeah, I would say, you know, going to Austin since Whole, you know, since they just bought Whole Foods and turning this headquarters into sort of their, their ground zero for trying to take over the U.S. grocery industry. That's that's would, a good point. I be. hadn't I hadn't thought about that that massive Austin Whole Foods headquarters could just be the center of a yeah, new Amazon. Yeah. So I mean like at least they'd be close together and then you could kind of, you know, work them. But at the same time, Austin, you know, has so many other infrastructure issues because it's just been growing too fast. Um other than that, there's a part of me that thinks like it's going to be some tech hub that is just not too expensive. So your executives who are tired of overpaying won't want to buy houses can go there. So like you're talking maybe Pittsburgh or Ra- the Rally Durham era, um, or because it's cheap compared to Seattle and New York and nowhere else, maybe Denver. I I'm I have this weird feeling it's going to be either Toronto or Baltimore. It's but not it's going to be Toronto. <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't think it's going to be Canada. You don't make American yeah. mayors get up and do a song and dance routine for you, and then like give it to Toronto. You just don't do yeah. that. And if you're and if you're looking for some of the like qualifications that they're talking about, about having uh, like a lot of already high tech, highly educated workers, about having a lot of mass transit, that's going to really limit which U.S. city. Yeah, or it could be it could be the D.C. area because Bezos has a mansion there. I mean, well, no, and that's and that's why I think Baltimore is in with a chance because if they if the bid includes a high speed rail link 
or even a low-speed rail link, you know, ex- extending the red line out to Baltimore, then, you know, that could really re-architect the entire Washington region and yeah. transform yeah. stuff. It'll be great when it's done in 2057. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Hey, listeners, whether you love true crime or comedies, celebrity interviews, news, or even motivational speakers, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue, right? And guess what? Now you can call the shots on your auto insurance, too. Enter the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. The Name Your Price tool puts you in charge of your auto insurance by working just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance. Then they'll show you a variety of coverages that fit within your budget, giving you options. Now, that's something you'll want to press play on. It's easy to start a quote, and you'll be able to choose the best option for you, fast. It's just one of the many ways you can save with Progressive Insurance. Quote today at Progressive.com to try the Name Your Price tool for yourself and join over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. All right. I think we should have a numbers round. Jacob, since you um, are very well prepared, you can start. My number is 229. Oh, yeah? That is the price I saw advertised for organic chicken at Whole Foods. And that is a low price for organic chicken. That's per pound. I'm sorry. Yes, per pound. Okay. Two twenty nine, not for, for a two- pound of organic chicken. That's 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 pretty good. It's a good deal. So and it's, so Amazon has immediately gone and slashed prices. I think that's cheaper than Trader Joe's. I mean, that's cheap. I, I thought maybe I should buy some chicken at that price. It's uh, it it points to their strategy and their aggressiveness in just a couple of weeks taking over the company. Anna. So I have kind of a sad number. <laughs> um, so I, I knew we were talking about like issues with media uh, today. So my number is 6.3 million. Um, this is the tax bill that is putting Cambodia Daily out of business. What? So yeah. this is one of the last independent newspapers still active in Cambodia. And they were given this ridiculous tax bill. I mean, this is a newspaper that's never made money. It's a nonprofit. And this is clearly just a way for the um, Hun Sen administration to stifle dissent. And it's this is something we've actually been seeing throughout Southeast Asia. In a, with a kind of a crackdown on the free press. And so this is just another really sad example of it. And that strategy, and it's interesting, is borrowed from Turkey and Russia. One yep. of the ways the uh, the regimes in those countries have been getting rid of independent media is hitting them with these unpayable tax bills. Then you take them into receivership and you can give that business to one of your cronies. My number is $2.2 billion. This is a... Sports ball number. <laughs> um, this is the amount Ow. that a Texan restaurateur has agreed to pay for the Houston Rockets, which I have to admit I'd never even heard of the Houston Rockets. Really? But the Houston Rockets play some kind of sports ball. And <laughs> they played an essential role in my third grade heartbreak when they beat the Knicks in the NBA Finals. And and they are now worth $2.2 billion, apparently, which is a new record for any sports team changing hands. And which it breaks the record set by Steve Ballmer when he bought the Clippers, the Clippers yeah. in L.A., and I feel like a bunch of that value, actually, going back to our previous conversation, is in the stadium tax breaks and stuff that all sports owners invariably wind up receiving. Possibly, yeah. And just sheer ego also. <laughs> that too. Um, my number is $257 million, uh, which is uh, how much... Filecoin has raised in its initial coin offering. Uh, file, it, is is that in Bitcoin or no, is that in Ether? ether. <laughs> I think it's Ether. I think it's Ether. It's the, not legal in China, but it's the largest. Fi- it's the largest ICO yet. And the thing about this one, so we had a, a few weeks ago, we had a conversation about ICOs where I, I think I said friends don't let friends invest in ICOs. That was my entire contribution to the to the conversation. But I think for the first time, I kind of understand what this one does and why it. It seems Uh-oh. like it inherently is valuable. <laughs> okay, which, now we've reached the top. Yeah. yeah. 
Yeah, the exactly. Minute when Jordan Weissman <laughs> stuff thing, maybe there's something there. Yeah, the, well, so a... either that or it means I just don't understand it. But so the idea is that this company allows you. It, it, the idea is it's distributed storage. It's like if you have a file you need to store somewhere, this just gives you space in their, you know, in their blockchain network, and you put it on whoever's computer. You're, right. You know, um, and that I mean, storage is valuable. No, like, it's not. No, it's not at all. Don't you remember <laughs> that like Gmail gave everyone a gigabyte for free like ten years? Okay, ago? so it's totally not. There's there, this is valuable. I feel like all, like <laughs> okay. storage was valuable. 20 years ago when you spent lots of money on hard drives. I, just, I can't remember the last time anyone just thought the like storage was valuable. It seems like a thing that could theoretically be valuable. I'm just right, saying just I like, kind of understand this one. It's almost. not worth $257 no, Just like dollars. tulips were valuable. <laughs> <laughs> All right, never mind. <laughs> Maybe it was the top. That moment right there. Everyone, you just And heard. plus, it's not even storage today when you do have to pay something, not very much for storage. It's storage well into the future when storage prices have only been going down and there's no conceivable way that they're ever going to be going up. All right, fine. Okay. Anyway, that's it. This is the end of Slate Money. Congratulations <laughs> on um, making it this far. Many thanks to Jacob Weisberg for gracing us with his presence you have to listen to his podcast it is called trump cast and it comes out a lot several <laughs> times a week usually monday wednesday and friday you're not always the host no i'm i we have two co-hosts virginia heffernan and jamel Bowie, who share our duties with me and you you just pick some new trump crazy every week and dissect it and try and understand what on earth is going on in the presidency yeah, we want to help people understand Trump. So we actually try to not always be right on the news, but to have different kinds of guests who we talk to in some depth who add some kind of insight to understanding what the hell's going on in the country. Are you going to get Chuck Schumer on? Uh, he was on Isaac Chotner's program. Um, ah. It was, was pretty good. And I just heard him interviewed somewhere else. Um, don't know. Uh, you know, he's, uh, I mean... You know, when you have sitting politicians, no, what you, you need, tend not no, to get yeah, a great interview. It's true. You need the recently. You need to wait for another three weeks. Wait for Gary Cohn to get fired, and <laughs> then get him on. That's, that's the that's the guest get you on. That's the that's the get. Uh, many thanks to Dan Schrader for producing. Keep on sending us your amazing emails at slate money at slate dot com. Yeah, and we will just sit here waiting for the inevitable defenestration of Gary Cohn and when that happens we will tr- we I guess we will try to get him, get him on as well Do you, I doubt he'll come I, on somehow now so we will talk to you next week on Slate Money look what you made me do look what you made me do look what you just made me do look what you just made me look what you made me do look what you made me do look what you just made me do look what you just made me do it's time for today's lucky land horoscope with victoria cash life's gotten mundane so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to lucky land you know what they say Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.